Monty is the coolest, funniest, most handsomest person I have ever or will ever know, even though I'm super famous now. Welcome to part one of a decade and a half of Mornings on the River. It's a 17-year-long career retrospective in two parts. As I say farewell to my beloved WRSI, at least full-time, and have new adventures to start in 2023. Here are all sorts of glimpses into what's been going on on my show over the last 17 years. I hope you enjoy it. Looking back on 17 years of Mornings with Me, one of my favorite memories will be all of the Green River Festivals, which I will continue to attend and be a part of. But remember back when hot air balloons were part of the festival? And one year, I got to take a hot air balloon ride. I'm about to enter the fire-breathing balloon. Am I supposed to get in? Yeah, come in now. All right. All right, I'm in. Okay, they're all set to go. Does this remind you of the Wizard of Oz? <laughs> no, she's just panicking. All right, I'm going to sit on the edge. If you see my shoes, grab them. Okay. All right. See you in Oz. We have liftoff. It's really crowded, I should mention, in our little basket. There are six of us in here. That's because you got aboard. I know, it's because I got aboard. I made everything crowded, but I'm a huge fan of sardines. We'll take you up to two or 3,000 feet. Get a good view. There's Poets Towers right straight out there. Yeah. Did you watch the fireworks from up here? No. Oh, my God. Is this wicker basket that we're in flame retardant? Uh, absolutely. Oh, good. We're about to cross the, the Connecticut into my neighborhood. If I had a cell phone, I'd call my wife. <laughs> oh, she's sleeping. They go to bed early. If we land on the roof, they might hear it. Uh, what are we doing now? We can go down and land in the water, take off again. There's some people that are on the beach on the Connecticut that thought we crashed. We're okay! We didn't crash! <laughs> we had our dust. Thanks for your concern, though! <laughs> People will call 911 if you sound like you're stressed. Can you, can you yell fire in a crowded balloon? No. Even if there is one. Getting ready to make a landing in the golf course right near my house. Or stay in the basket. Rule number one of a landing is stay in the basket. <laughs> if you had any temptation to jump out of the basket for any reason, don't do that. Now hang on, hang on. we're going to bounce up on top of it. We're going to go up in the air, it's going to go some more. <laughs> this is exciting. I'm going to land right in the street here. What's your name? Sally Ahern. Where are you from? Greenfield. And what did you think about that ride? It was absolutely wonderful. I'm afraid to go in Glaston elevators, but this was something totally different. What, made, what was the difference? You didn't feel like you were moving. It wasn't because you were really close and cuddling with me? That was part of it. I clawed you a few times. One of the other things that I've loved about being part of the Green River Festival, which I will still continue to be a part of, is talking to artists backstage, like when I talked to Richard Thompson back in 2012. Philip Price, Local Heroes, Winterfields. How does it feel to uh, have Richard Thompson opening up for you? He's not really opening up for us. It's Richard Thompson, Winterfields. That's true, but it's just chronological and time is a myth anyway. For the rest of your life, you can tell everybody. Remember that time Richard Thompson opened up for us? I'll, I'll do that. Richard Thompson, wonderful setup there. In my opinion, you were one of the key artists that we've played on WRSI for many, many years. You're a bona fide legend, and to watch your face up there, it seems like you were having a fantastic time still, and not taking yourself too seriously. What's the secret to, to loving it every time you go up there? Uh, I don't love it every time I go up there. No? Did you love it today? I loved it today. I, I'm, it's, it's a wonderful crowd. It must be nice to sing crawl back and know that the audience is going to sing crawl back to you because you didn't have any background. Well, over. I didn't know they were going to do that. I'm glad they did. <laughs> you, you, know, you know, sometimes you get on stage and it's like terrible. You can't hear yourself, uh -huh. and, and the crowd's not interested, and you, and you think, 
think, oh my goodness, you know, get me through this, right. please. But you know, 99 times out of 100, it's a great experience. You know, I get to do the, the job, you know, that I wanted to do, you know, when I was at school. Right. And I've been doing it since I left school, and um, it's great. I even get paid for this, which is ridiculous, you know. As an owner of a 1970 Triumph motorcycle, I know it doesn't have the soul of a Vincent 52, but is it, how much truth is there in that 1952 Vincent Black Lightning song? Well, it's truth in the sense that it's total fiction. Fiction, as we know, is is uh, is larger than life in order to reflect life accurately. So, so um, are you a fan of vintage motorcycles? I love them. Yeah, absolutely. So you, have you ever owned a Vincent? I've never, I've never. I've never been able to afford a Vincent. I still can't afford a Vincent. I know. There's a dream of mine that I would that I would get rid of this Triumph someday and search for a 1952 Vincent Black Lightning yeah. because of your song. Well, well, to get one working, I mean, I mean. You know, 60, 100 grand, something, mm -hmm. I don't know, you know, it's, it's, One time you were scheduled to play the Northeast and play Brattleboro and you were stung by a scorpion. Yeah. And you had to cancel the tour. What happened? I was stung by a scorpion. Ben Gibbard from Death Cab for Cutie, weeks later, was stung by a scorpion, scorpion several times and played that night. Well, it depends on the scorpion. The scorpions are scorpions. You, you know, I, I, Not the band from the 80s. Uh, you don't want to be stung by one of them. You know, I live in California and you get these little scorpions. It's like a bee sting, it's like nothing, you know. Uh -huh. but, but I was down in Mexico and there's a particularly... Centroroides is the genus, you know, those, of you, uh -huh. those of you at home. I'm um, going to have to check that with, out. With, with the dictionary. And, and they're quite nasty, so I was, I was, you know, I was just numb, you know. Yeah, um, right. I, was, I, was, I was truly incapacitated. Really? Like how, how much of your body? Well, it started off with my whole arm. Where, oh my where, God. It was gone and then it slowly drained out and it, uh -huh. took, 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 it was just the finger. I think it was those finger. I'm glad because I would like to think Richard Thompson is tougher than Ben. Gibbard from Death Cabin. Yeah, um, there's no question. Been, been around longer, you know? Scenes from Backstage at Green River Festival 2012. That's Richard Thompson backstage at the Green River Festival from 2012, looking back on 17 years of mornings with me here on the river as I retire to a more sane schedule. Looking back on 17 years, mornings here on the river. One of my regular guests and my actual veterinarian is Dr. Steve from the Sunderland Animal Hospital. One of my favorite segments with Dr. Steve was when we talked about a disease that is not fun to have, but is certainly fun to say, thanks to Wilford Brimley. Time for a little more heavy petting with Dr. Steve from the Sunderland Animal Hospital. I'm Wilford Brimley, and I'd like to talk to you for a few minutes about diabetes. Wilford Brimley's, God rest his soul. Did he die? I don't know, but he's busy eating oatmeal, wasn't he? Yeah. Folks at Quaker Oats tell us we could eat oatmeal for 11 days in a row and never have the same flavor twice. He's the oatmeal guy. Whether right? or not the oatmeal is good for the diabetes. Diabetes. Which is the other thing that Wilford Brimley is big on. Oatmeal, diabetes. Oatmeal, diabetes. Diabetes is something that pets get, too. <laughs> they do. <laughs> diabetes. You don't like when I call it diabetes? I do. Diabetes. It just reminds me of my younger son. All through their sixth grade year, they had a big controversy as to whether you pronounce it syrup or syrup. Yeah, see, I don't actually even know. And Nobody knows. But I think I say syrup. Do you say pajamas or pajamas? Pajamas. So, so do I, but Melissa says pajamas. Well, it's... And I say diabetes. Diabetes. Thanks to Wilford Brimley. That's I'll just right. say arthritis. Oh, aren't you supposed to say God rest his soul right uh, now? Yeah, if he died, but I don't if remember. If he died. Well, 
worry, he will in the future. But the pets get diabetes. But diabetes. That's right. Well, the diabetes. The diabetes. I like to eat. Yeah. No. And, you know, oftentimes what it is, I mean, dogs and cats can get diabetes. I'm going to have to start The diabetes. That, that, now, do they now have to then take the insulin? The insulin. The insulin. Oftentimes we'll diagnose them because the owner's complaining that maybe they're having some accidents around the house. They're drinking more water, like tons of water. I had an unquenchable thirst. My tongue felt like a horseshoe rasp. So and these are the same symptoms if you think you have the diabetes. That's right. Do pets consume sweets and have to worry about sweets in the same way that, that humans do? They shouldn't be consuming sweets. And I've eaten ice cream and apple pie, and I've done things I shouldn't do. But although I was thinking about this earlier, that there is some question as to maybe how diet is related to the development. There's some people who feel that perhaps maybe how we feed, especially our cats, may push them into the diabetes because... I can't say See, now no, you want to call it. I now do. you wonder whether it's really always called that or not. I Next think. time you have a patient in here, you're going to say, I think, I'm gonna say, you I know, think Fifi Will. has the diabetes. Thanks to Will for Brimley. Here, have some Will diabetes. Do dogs get the diabetes? Dogs get the diabetes. Do dogs well. that look more like Wilford Brimley get the diabetes? Or B.B. King? When I was first diagnosed with the diabetes. I think he also has to shoot. Up. He does. B.B. King's definitely got the diabetes. Mm -hmm. But yes, dogs can get it. It doesn't necessarily matter what they look like. However, again, just like with people, overweight, lack of activity, those sorts of things can help to propel you into the diabetes. Actually, with both cats and dogs, we give insulin. We do some diet changes, you know, get them to eat more oatmeal and things like that. Oatmeal diabetes. A lot of them do really, really well once we get things under control. Now, when you say, Dr. Steve, that we give them the insulin, what it really ends up coming down to is the pet owner is going to end up having to learn how to shoot up their animal, right? With, yeah. the, with a needle. It's that, easy. It seems easy. No, it if you've never easy. done it, it's frightening. The man doesn't like to admit he was scared, but I truly was. I have done it, but only to my friend's cat, and I was scared to death. Yeah, but wasn't it easy once you eventually, got over yeah. your eventual fear? Kind of empowering. It is. I could too. Come here, Kitty. Mm -hmm. you, and and the next thing you know, you were probably giving the kids and the wife shots of yeah. insulin too. Okay, what I know how to everybody. Do they make it? You know, BB King's got it's, that one touch thing where he just oh, just a little prick on the finger. You test your blood sugar on those fingers. Back to playing Lucille. We can use some of those things, and actually, they they aren't calibrated for dogs and cats necessarily, but we do have people who do home regulation. A lot of veterinarians were getting onto that because coming into the vet's office is kind of stressful. One of the other things, too, that we should say is that the insulin that's out there, we use um, human insulin. So we give our pets human insulin? That's right. Why is our insulin so much better for the diabetes? It actually isn't better for the pets but it's, we just, it's what's available it's what's available yeah because in the past they would use like beef insulin and pork insulin and insulin is fairly similar across species okay typically it's like a few different amino acids depending but um it's fairly consistent and so we use beef and pork and then as recombinant dna technology and everything became more available they started making human insulins and um it has not been financially viable for a lot of the pet um, pharmaceutical companies to be producing insulin. If, if you have a little insulin to spare and you suspect your cat has the diabetes, just diabetes. draw a little out of yourself and inject it into your cat. <laughs> Is that what you're recommending? <laughs> no, I'm never recommending that. All right, That's against the law. That's a look back at one of my special guests over the last 17 years of doing this show. He was a regular guest on Kelsey Flynn's show and on Rachel Maddow's show. Dr. Steve from the Sunderland Animal Hospital. Looking back on 17 years as the morning host here on the river, 
One of the greatest joys has been a partnership over all of these years with Northampton and the world's favorite octogenarian rock and roll chorus, Young at Heart. The sad part about having a chorus filled with so many older people is that they're often nearer to passing away. Here's a look back at my conversation with Young at Heart's founder about one of their more famous chorus members, especially after their groundbreaking and amazing documentary from back in 2008. Fred Niddle. Fred passed away on New Year's Day 2009. I spoke with Young at Heart chorus director Bob Silman just after Fred's death. Well, um, Fred Niddle passed away yesterday. Fred had just turned 83. Well, you know, Fred came to us back in 1992, and what he first really, I think, was uh, so interested in was we would go to schools in the morning and sing for school kids. Fred was a big man. He developed this other thing for that show, singing Nat King Cole's Unforgettable and doing the sort of uh, duet that uh, Nat King Cole did with Natalie Cole. The music teachers would always prepare some kid to come and sing this song with Fred, Unforgettable, but the kids didn't know what Fred was like. They didn't realize they were going to be singing with this guy with this magnificent bass voice. I mean, just magnificent. They would do these duets and Fred would just make them feel so comfortable and so at home they you know they'd come in sort of petrified and walk out feeling so jubilant and you know he had that effect on a lot of people my name is bob silman i'm the director of the young at heart i'm the director of the northampton arts council the young at heart chorus is a group of elder performers uh, based in northampton but from all over western massachusetts who have been performing for the last 26 years if you've seen the young at heart movie what is the song in the movie that you would remember fred from well, he sings Fix You at the Academy of Music, and it was really originally meant to be a duet between him and a guy named Bob Salvini. And unfortunately, Bob passed away before the, he could perform the song at the Academy, and Fred had to go on and do it on his own. And what you hear is, it just becomes this, an incredible sort of um, orchestration based on his um, oxygen tank. You hear the, the, the hissing of his oxygen tank keeping the rhythm of the song. And you have, you know, I remember that moment really well. And it'll probably stay with me all my life. And I never thought it would translate so well on film, but it did. I mean, it had over a million hits on YouTube. When you try your best, but you don't succeed. When you get what you want, but not what you need. Fred was also... Uh, notoriously a funny guy. Can you remember any funny Fred moments? I can, I can end every one of Fred's jokes because uh, I heard them many times and they were all very funny. I mean, the ones that I like the most are a little too off-color. I, I don't know if I can get away with the one about the uh, the acute angina. I, I, I can't do it. What was the last conversation you had with Fred? I was right, right in the hospital right before he... Um, you know, a couple days before he passed. And uh, he was in um, remarkably good spirit. You know, Fred was in extra innings for a long time. He wasn't even supposed to make it to the point where he could be in that film. And um, he went a couple years beyond that. Fred had always wanted to do something patriotic with the chorus. And, you know, I, it's never been my, I mean, I love America, but it's never been my approach with the group. And uh, one of the last things we got to do with Fred was um, we got invited to sing the national anthem at Fenway Park. And he, you know, he hadn't traveled anywhere, but we, we figured out a way to get him to Fenway because he, he was a big Red Sox fan, and the idea of doing the national anthem there was a big, big thing for him. And it was a very emotional day. He started the song out for us. Oh, say, can you 
It was quite amazing. And then we thought that was going to be it, but then two days later we had to perform at the Academy, and Fred wasn't going to be part of it, but one of our members got sick. And I said, ah, oh, Fred can do Fix You one more time. And, and I called him up, and he was like, when do I need to be there? You know, the best way to, to, to honor somebody is to keep on doing what they were doing. You know, we always get very sad about people who die, but, you know, we do have this great thing in the course that we know people were doing something really special at the end of their lives. And for me, it's like, God, I want to be doing that when I'm that old. I have no idea if I'll be doing that. To be able to, to be singing pretty much to the end, that's a pretty cool thing. I guess we have that to comfort us. Lights will guide you I will try to fix you. Young at Heart Chorus Director Bob Silman on the 2009 passing of legendary Young at Heart Chorus member Fred Niddle. Looking back on 17 years as morning host here on the river. Looking back on 17 years of mornings here on the river as I retire from morning radio, but don't retire in general. You know, there's more work to be done. It's hard not to feel connected to the hosts who've come before me, including Rachel Maddow, of course, and former city councilor Bill Dwight. Remember Scott Brown, who was the senator for a hot minute before Elizabeth Warren? Kind of the guy responsible for the Tea Party movement? There was a time where he was claiming to his constituents that Rachel Maddow was going to run against him for Senate. So, the former radio host Bill Dwight made a Facebook page about the former radio host Rachel Maddow for Senate, which caused a conflagration that was amazing to cover in its time back in 2010. How many people would it take to join the Facebook page Rachel Maddow for U.S. Senate in 2012 for you to actually run Rachel Maddow? I will not run for anything if ever. you <laughs> not gonna happen if it gets a million wanna... fans will you name your daughter megatron <laughs> yes but why don't you want to run there's so many people have called my show and are posting on facebook she would be perfect look at even the ad that you took out against what scott brown said it's so open it's so transparent it's so truthful it's honest why why isn't it something you'd ever consider because if people have that reaction to the way that i comport myself on public events i want them to watch my show that's what I want. I don't actually want to run. I don't want to run for office. I've never wanted to run for office. I've never. It's never been something that I've ever wanted to do, and I'm really not going to do it. It's not my career path. Never, it's ever, or I'm never going. now? Never, ever. What about president? No, 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 no. I want to do what I'm doing. I want to do what I did on the river, and I want to do what I did in Air America, and I want to do what I'm doing on, on MSNBC. This is, this is what I do. And if I was ever doing not this, if this career ends, because... You know, sometimes careers like this end, mm -hmm. then I would go back to being an activist. I don't want to run for office. It's really flattering and it's really nice that people are reacting to this whole made up thing by Scott Brown by saying, hey, actually, maybe you should run. But it's this says more about Scott Brown's political future than it does about mine. And it turns out that Scott Brown is a hack who makes stuff up to run against because he doesn't want to talk about real issues. So this is about Scott Brown's future. It's not about mine because I don't have a future in politics, but I, I'm not sure Scott Brown does either. Will you at least pose nude in Gentleman's Quarterly? Yes. I'm crushed, but and I have to say that that you know trading off Gentleman's Quarterly for a run for the Senate and saying unequivocally yes or no on either one, but you know I, I you I you don't believe that she said it unequivocally that she wouldn't run for Senate in 2012, Bill Dwight. You are still who started the Facebook page in the first place. You still oh, no, believe, believe that, that no, she I, wants to no. run, that she will run. 
No, no, no. I, I believe I, I hear Rachel clearly and, and unequivocally now that she does not run, want to run, will not run, has no desire or aspiration to run. And I only said I'd be naked in GQ to make you happy, Chris. You Thank you. That actually wouldn't work. But <laughs> if, if GQ wanted the three of us naked, Monty, you, and, and Bill, and me, uh, the three of us naked in GQ, I don't think any of us could really turn them down. Come on, guys. No, I would no, turn I them down. Camera angle wide enough, actually. <laughs> we could all be naked on Bill Dwight's back. You know, that sounds so hot. I can't even deal with it. You know, you know what? That actually would work as a dietary aid for people just thinking <laughs> that. And I don't want to meet the people that it would stimulate. Now, just before I let you go, Rachel, yeah. you have taken out a massive ad in the in the Boston Globe that says you're not running and Scott Brown's a creep for trying to raise money on the fact that he thinks you're running. Has he at this point at all or anybody tried to reach out and say, I'm sorry, let's talk. I'll come on your show. I have the statement. No, I, I can confirm to you exclusively right now that for the fourth day running, we have called Scott Brown's office multiple times. And he is not only not talking to me, he's not having his staff talking to me. He's not having his staff talk to my staff. They won't even return our phone calls. That may actually be a technical problem. He just got an email uh, address yesterday. Email We're getting through and they say, we'll call you back. It doesn't seem like he's having a hard time finding any press elsewhere. So there's yeah. people that are getting to him. He also went on Good Morning America this morning and said it was inappropriate for Barack Obama to say bring it on when he was talking about people bringing on uh, lawsuits to or, or efforts to repeal health reform. So it was inappropriate for Obama to say, bring it on. The day after he said, bring it on about me. <laughs> the day after Scott Brown said, bring her on. It's because Scott Brown has copywritten the word, bring it on. <laughs> and now, now Obama's trying to use it. It's just one more thing that the socialist Democrats are trying to take from freedom. I'm going all, you know, Das Kapital on him right now. Rachel Maddow, host of The Rachel Maddow Show, former host of The Big Breakfast, but now you can see her 9 p.m. on MSNBC. And Bill Dwight, who started the Facebook page that was heard round the world, <laughs> host of The Bill Dwight Show on our news station, WHMP, uh, 9 a.m. weekdays. I can't wait for you to come back, Bill. You're in California right now. And Rachel, I'm going to get all geeky and sentimental now, but you are doing the most important work for our country on television, and I think that uh, the majority of the people that are listening would totally concur. Thank you. That's very nice of you to say, and uh, and I'll, I'll talk to you about it in detail when we do the naked photo shoot, the three of us, okay? Can't wait. All right. Bye, you guys. Bye, Rachel. A look back at when former Senator Scott Brown claimed Rachel Maddow was going to run against him for Senate back in 2010. Looking back at 17 years of mornings here with me on the river. One of my favorite segments over the years has been the wine snobs, where I usually record for about 38 minutes and try to edit it down into two four to six minute segments. I think of it as my magnum opus every week. And some of the characters who are either deceased or no longer with the show bring me some of my fondest memories of being on the air. My late great wine mother and my good friends, who are luckily still alive, the cork dork and the wine uncle. This is when I tasted what is still to this day, the worst wine I have ever had in my life, courtesy of the cork door. Oh, are we on? Yeah, we're on. Okay. Um, we're in the winemonger deep below State Street Fruit Store, Daily Wines and Spirits with my wine mother in the cork door, drinking wine that we cannot buy here. It is so rare. Only a case and a half of each was made. This is wine that you made, cork door. Correct. From grapes, not from concentrate. And today's exercise. I coffee. love drinking for exercise, by the way. <laughs> Lifting the glass up and there down. Twirling round, round. <laughs> Breathe in. <laughs> 
I smell barnyard and out. Basically, what it costs you or I to make wine from either grapes or from concentrate is 3 to $4. That's just for the concentrate or the grapes. It doesn't include any equipment. So basically, by the time you get the equipment, the raw material, and if you retailed it, the retail wines, the good wines we're going to try today, would be these would be about the same price okay. in the store. You know, $5, 4 to $5 a bottle. People, now that they know that I, I really like wine, I'm learning a lot about wine, they say, well, why don't you just start making your own wine? Are you recommending this as a practice? It might be fun once or twice, but wait till you try these wines compared to the real ones. If you can buy a bottle of wine for 5 to $6, why spend your time and money making wine that eventually would cost you about the same amount of money? Especially if it's gross. Both of the wines that are homemade here are 100% Zinfandel. Zinfandel from California. And of course, we're 5,000 miles from California. So by the time they send the grapes to Bay State here in Springfield and you buy them, you're not getting very good quality fruit. And I think that's a hell of a reflection on the color here. Yeah, it looks well. like you can see right through it. It is orange almost. Yes. Yeah. We did this once in a friend's house in, um, in Forest took, Park. It took over the entire house, the aromas, didn't it? The aromas and the fruit flies, they come out of nowhere. Uh, this poor guy had his cellar door closed and taped. Still had fruit flies, didn't he? Yes, he did. This yeah. is Cork Dork Vintage, what, 2006? Yeah, yeah I would say 2006. Which is surprising. <laughs> it is not good. It is no. wicked tart. We had a problem with acidity that year. Right. I mean, it, it doesn't smell good. It doesn't taste good. It's really, it's, it's really, I don't mean to hurt your feelings. No, right. don't. Right. Why do you think I brought these in? Yeah, all right. It almost is painful to drink. I couldn't even finish the whole glass, to be perfectly honest with you. Let's would, dump it out and try the second one. This would be the first time I've ever dumped out wine here, I think. Would you drink that whole, a whole glass of that? Oh, boy, it all depends. If my sister Gail was around, yeah, probably. Cork Dork Wine, number two. Now, this year, we had a, uh, a bit of a mishap. The barrel rolled over. I had to go out and buy a 30-gallon new oak barrel. So this is sort of over-oaked. It's, Ooh, it's like, yikes. yeah, can you smell that oak? So, but this, this is like 100% Zinfandel. There's not even any mixing. What the heck did you do? <laughs> like, how could, how did you screw this up? Uh, it's like moonshine. Right. Compared to vodka. Well, moonshine has one purpose, which is to get you lit. This will do the same. Well, right. But you're supposed to theoretically enjoy the taste and smell of wine. This smells like molasses and smoke <laughs> and a stomach ache. Or, or paint thinner. Lacquer. Yeah, paint thinner. We both said it at yeah. the same time. Lacquer. How did that get in there? I did filter this through a car radiator. This is just, this is awful. Okay, dump that out oh, and yeah. we'll rinse. All right, now we picked these two wines, a Spanish wine and an Italian wine, that basically cost probably the same amount of money to produce, but it's done professionally. Five to six dollar bottle of wine on the shelf. Okay, I already the color is already darker, different grape, but it doesn't make me want to vomit when I smell it. <laughs> no acetone. Now this isn't a great wine by any stretch of the imagination, but I could drink this. We have a new guinea pig here. <laughs> wine uncle. Wine uncle has entered the building. I don't know what this is, but this is not. This is not <laughs> Casa Solar. No, it is not. What do you think of it? Um, it looks interesting, like pomegranate juice or something. Uh-huh. Wine uncle used to work at the UN. He's been very diplomatic. Very diplomatically. It's odd. I'm just going to say that. I have no idea what this is. I sense that it was made locally somehow. Yes, indeed. He's using his ninja skills. A a rising star in wine production. It was made on Memorial Drive in Chicopee. It has that Chicopee feel. There's (laughs) The terroir of Chicopee, which is actually chickpeas. This shows how you don't make a red wine just by crushing the grape and pouring the juice out. Right. Because this is very pale. It's, It's, um... You know, this is aged in an interesting fashion. He's so nice. It's over the top, but it has a... Uh, Mark, I almost threw up. Th- I still feel sick thinking about that wine. I don't even want to look at it. It has, it has sadly turned. Okay, that's it, folks. Wow. Leave that, it to pro- the that, professionals. That was an experience. 
That's from back in 2011 in the wine bunker when I had what is still, to this day, the worst wine I've ever had in my entire life. Looking back on 17 years of mornings with me. It's Monty looking back on 17 years of mornings here on the river. And I think pretty much no matter what else I do in my life, unless it's illegal, when the Book of Monty is finally closed, what I'll be most famous for is the March for the Food Bank, the 13th of which we just held a month ago and raised over $500,000. Thank you. Very little audio exists from that first March for the Food Bank. However, I did find this promo that aired the weekend after the march. Let's go! $7,000. We're getting close to Yankee Candle. This does make me want to march. I'm going to carry a drummer with me all the time. 888-323-HOPE. They'll take your dollar and stretch it to $9. We're trying to get to $10,000 for the day. Thanks to you, Monty's March raised $15,000 for the Food Bank of Western Mass. This is what a revolution is all about. I did that march all by myself with somebody following me in a van. And when it got dark out, somebody up in front waving a flashlight around so I didn't get hit by a car. Thank you, Bob Diamond. I also found some audio from the second march for the food bank. Hartsbrook kids who have been joining me will be leaving shortly and spelled by their seniors, spelled by kids from Amherst Montessori School. But now the kids from Amherst Montessori, you've been working hard. You did a gnocchi soup fundraiser to raise money for the food bank. All the money you raised, the food bank's going to take each and every dollar and multiply it by 13. Wow. And Kieran from Amherst Montessori, you've got the money to um, present to me. What do you got? I got um, $50 and um, 177 Do we know what that is? Because I cannot do that math personally myself. Can you add that up? I can't. You can't? Let's can. think like about it. $4,000. It's at least yeah. that. At yeah. least $4,000. Well, thank you very much, Kieran. I'm going to put that right in the cash box welded into the cart on our way to the $20,000 that we're hoping to make today. In the chaos of the aftermath of Monty's March 2 in Magpie, uh, we were just given the grand total by Sarah from the Food Bank of $30,599.22. Dan and Kim Shadle from Florida, Massachusetts. Kim, with the beautiful Scottish accent, you didn't make the march, but you supported us the whole time. I did, and the whole day I was listening on the radio, having dropped Dan off at 6 o'clock, I think, 5.30, 6 o'clock, listened to the whole thing, I was following you on Facebook, looking for new pictures, happy to see Dan in a lot of pictures, and just really amazed that you made it to the total, because things were looking really grim about the 2 o'clock. Beyond the total. They were looking really bad about 2 o'clock. The secret number, when we stopped for lunch when we counted the cash box I wasn't supposed to tell you oh, wow. was $3,000. Mr. Brooks from Smith Vocational and Agricultural High School. I am at Magpie after Monty's March and we just got the grand total from the food bank. Um, 50% greater than I was even hoping for Mr. Brooks and your cart and the kids is part of the inspiration that that made it possible. That is your signature cart. Even in Monty's movie, you see the cart rolling across the screen. It looks good. It's uh, the students did a wonderful job this year, and you made it another 26 miles, putting food into people's mouths that need 
really needed in uh, the Pioneer Valley. And I really want you to um, convey the message to the kids that worked on this car that the work that they put in there, extra hours, you staying until 10 o'clock at night, it really makes a difference. The students know what the, what it goes for too as well, and so they're very happy to be proud of it. Well, I, I thank you, Mr. Brooks, and I thank your class at Smith Vocational. Well, thank you, Monty, and good luck for next year too as well. Yeah, and you're going to take the card away now, and I won't see it again until sometime in November next year probably. That's correct. That's scenes from the second march for the food bank. While I am retiring from mornings, I am not retiring from marching. Not yet. The march for the food bank 14 will continue right here on the river in 2023. Looking back on 17 years of mornings with me on the river here, it's hard to drive in the valley and not see a bumper sticker that says, Eat More Kale. But do you remember when the Vermont artist behind Eat More Kale was sued by Chick-fil-A? And when the governor of Vermont entered the fray to defend him? Here's part of that conversation from back in 2011. Vermont artist Bo Muller-Moore is the Eat More Kale guy. He's currently in a legal battle with a fast food chain, Chick-fil-A, whose slogan is Eat More Chicken. He's already battled Chick-fil-A in the past for use of Eat More, but the battle has begun again. Finally, this year in August, I decided that I needed the federal trademark to protect my easily duplicated design from other t-shirt artists. I've had nine t-shirt artists in the past three years create websites that are copycats of mine in which they attempt to sell my exact design on t-shirts. Now that's confusing to my potential customer base. You know, I'm not such a laissez-faire guy that I think anybody can do anything. I understand the right to protect and, and to, to keep your customers from being confused. But my argument is there is no confusion from a t-shirt sold online and a chicken sandwich sold in person. So I applied for the trademark for Eat More Kale on T-shirts and bumper stickers. Now, they keep an eye on the application uh, office, and they block anything that says Eat More Anything, and they have a 10-year precedent of doing it. But nobody's challenged them. Everybody's been bullied, and the prospects of never-ending court costs have really scared a handful of businesses away. So with the help of a free lawyer and some counsel from the University of New Hampshire and the support of all of Vermont and it seems all of New England and I've seriously I'm not exaggerating I've gotten four to five emails per minute since this hit the national press last wow. week of people telling me to fight the fight and, and that they recognize that this is clearly bullying. And even Chick-fil-A customers will write me and said, you know, I really respected them up until I, I learned of their history of bullying small businesses. Vermont artisan Bo Muller-Moore, the Eat More Kale guy, another heavy hitter who's joined your camp is Vermont Governor Peter Shumlin, who actually was part of a press conference the other day where he advocated publicly for you trying to stave off whom he believes are, are bullies as well, the Chick-fil-A people, uh, from taking away your Eat More Kale trademark. Is that true? Pretty wild, huh? If you think that Vermonters don't understand the difference between kale and a chicken sandwich, we invite you to Vermont and we'll give you a lesson about the difference between a kale and a chicken. Kale is a vegetable. Chickens are birds. What does the governor call you and say, hey, I'm going to hold a press conference so that we can keep your more kale? They 
did. They called us last Saturday, and they said, what can we do? And we were a little dumbstruck. We didn't exactly know what they could do, but they suggested that they would start a site for a legal defense fund, and you know they didn't have to ask twice. And how have people been contributing to the legal defense fund, and does it seem like it's going to be something that you're going to have uh, adequate legal coverage on this? I am. It's humbling. It's really amazing. Yes, sir. I don't know the totals on it right now. I'm really too busy printing T-shirts to keep an eye on it, but it's really amazing. And even some people are giving and then giving again. I saw one person gave one day and then wrote back the next day to give more because the more they thought about it, the more they wanted to give. You're actually calling it Team Kale now, is that right? Yes, sir. Does this have to do with like the Twilight series and or Conan O'Brien? Yeah. Came from the geniuses over at the, the the governor's office. So the governor of Vermont created Team Kale. He did, yes, sir. I I pin him for a Team Jacob guy in the Twilight series. But if people want to join Team Kale, what can they do? They can go to the homepage of my website, eatmorekale.com. And if they don't necessarily want to give money, um, there's a petition at change.org under Eat More Kale. And each signature and each note on that petition is being sent individually to three executives at Chick-fil-A. Last time I checked, that had right around 20,000 signatures in about a 14-day period. I'm sure they're appreciating the high levels of kale-related web traffic. If only they brought that much kale into their diet, they would be extremely healthy people. Maybe a little less of the chick filet. But do let me make it clear. There's plenty of room for both of us. I'm not anti-Chick-fil-A, but I'm just saying there is plenty of room for both of us. You know, in the United States, in this economy, there's room for the Goliaths, and there's, there's room for the little guys. There's also room to eat more any number of substances. More chicken, more kale, more ice cream, more baba ganoush. Exactly. Didn't your mom every night at dinner say, you know, eat more of your vegetables? Yeah, I grew up Italian, so I mean, it was eat more of everything. I'm glad Chick-fil-A didn't go after your mother. Not yet. A conversation from back in 2011 when Vermont artist Bo Muller-Moore was being sued by the Chick-fil-A people. The Vermont governor stepped in. Guess who won? Kale. I don't do Chick-fil-A. Coming up, more of a 17-year look back of my show here on the river. Looking back on 17 years of doing mornings here on the river, a huge part of what made so many of those years special was raising money for the Cancer Connection. What was less special was camping in the cold in downtown Northampton, which I hate, but was just uncomfortable enough to elicit so much generosity from you in the community. I'm still good friends with the founder of the Cancer Connection, Deb Orgera. After Deb's partner in creating the Cancer Connection, Jackie passed away, and after Deb stepped down at leadership, Betsy Neisner was at the helm of the Cancer Connection for many years. She was a wonderful soul. She passed away due to ovarian cancer earlier this year. Here's a conversation I had with Betsy about the work of the Cancer Connection back in 2012. Betsy Neisner from the Cancer Connection, while you're not busy advocating for access to drugs for people with cancer and all sorts of different people and and fighting the manufacturers and the distributors, You are running the Cancer Connection in Northampton. How much money does the Cancer Connection get from the federal and state government to provide the complimentary services that you offer to people for free? A nice round number, zero. That is not a lot of money. (laughs) We look to foundations like Rays of Hope Foundation, which underwrites some of our programs for for breast cancer. But primarily, our money comes from um, our own fundraising events, the wonderful Monty's Campout, and individual contributions. What I initially 
turned me on to you and, and the work that, that the Cancer Connection has done and the reason that I began camping out, this being the sixth time, is that I know that the the trauma of going through cancer on a physical level is, is so great with the medicine, the medications and the surgeries and that sort of thing that people can be exposed to, just physical toll on their body. But what the Cancer Connection does so well is deal with the other aspect of a whole person, the emotional, even the spiritual side of what it's like to go through cancer and how important a massage can be in the middle of that treatment that you're, you know, the medicine that you're taking to try to kill the cancer in your body. A massage can be relaxing and spiritually fulfilling and emotionally fulfilling in a way that the medication might never be able to touch. And it also helps counteract some of the toxic side effects of cancer, nausea or fatigue, pain, tingling, neuropathy in the um, in the feet, and the hands. Some of our com- complementary therapies make a huge difference. Well, we have nine groups now. We have um, breast cancer and lymphedema, gynecological cancers, melanoma. We have a men's cancer support group, two general cancer support groups. One meets in South Amherst, a caregivers and families group, a bereavement group. And we're about to start a, a group for people with advanced cancers because for those people who are diagnosed in in late-stage cancer, they're facing issues that people newly diagnosed are not. Often we find that in the support groups, people who are not doing well don't want to talk about that in front of other people who are newly diagnosed because they don't want to scare them. And I don't want anyone to feel that they don't have a a group, a place where they can talk about, about their worries. But sometimes it's not huge fears. It's working out strategies to be positive during the end-of-life period. For instance, one woman came to me and she said, I don't have grandchildren yet, but I know that my kids are all going to have children and I'm going to miss reading to them. Is it possible to find someone who can tape me reading children's stories? And then my grandchildren will have that. And I thought, that's fabulous. So as a community support center, it's very easy for me to turn on a dime and find somebody who can do that sort of thing. If you get a a major national cancer agency, they can't create a program that's needed at the moment. I can't tell you how many times people come up to me, either at the camp out or apart from the camp out, that said, my aunt, my mother, my brother went through cancer, and if only there was a place like the Cancer Connection that could have helped them and helped us as a family get through this all together, it would have been hugely beneficial, and that's why I want to donate. How much do you generally charge for the therapy sessions, for the massage, for the grandmother who wants to record, to read children's books to her as of yet unborn grandchildren. Everything is free of charge. And we think that's really important because people who are going through cancer treatment, they don't know what the future holds for them. They don't know if they can maintain their job. And our feeling is that they don't need that stress. So although we pay our complementary therapists and our support group facilitators and the people who conduct the classes and aqua aerobics and writing and, and painting and all of those things. We offer all of our programs free of charge. Um, so we mostly rely on the community, which in a way is wonderful because the community knows what we do and they know what they need and they know they can come to us and ask us for help and they can see it happen. Let's say we break last year's goal of $25,000 for this Cancer Connection campout. What does that amount of money mean to an organization like the Cancer Connection? Oh, it, it's hugely important. We're starting this support group for advanced cancers, for instance. We don't have any funding for it. We know that it's needed, so we're going to start it, and we're going to look for the money to support it. It would cost $5,000 a year to have a professional 
social worker who understands treatment for cancer and serious illness who will run the group. And so $5,000 of that will go to this support group for advanced cancers. Remembering my dear friend, Betsy Neisner, who passed away due to cancer earlier this year and who for many years was so supportive of the folks using the services of the Cancer Connection, which I camped out for and bedded in for 16 out of the 17 years I was on the air in the morning. Looking back on 17 years of doing my morning show here on the river, after the election of President Trump, weekly, I spoke to our U.S. Congressman from the 2nd Congressional District of Massachusetts, Jim McGovern, in a segment I've called McGoverning with McGovern. But one time, we got to McGovern with McGovern and McGovern when Senator George McGovern, Congressman Jim McGovern's mentor, joined me and Bill Newman on WHMP's Bill Newman Show just months before Senator George McGovern passed away. Here's that conversation from 2012. Senator George McGovern, your new book, What It Means to Be a Democrat, there is a, a lot of criticism leveled at the contemporary Democratic Party from the more progressive end of the Democratic wing. You're Michael Moore's calling Bill Clinton the best Republican president we've ever had. What's your take uh, as a, a staunchly liberal Democrat from sort of the heyday of liberal Democrats in the 20th century uh, on the contemporary Democratic Party. Is it still that same party? Well, you know, uh, one of the problems is that a number of the good, solid, liberal Democratic senators went down to defeat in 1980. There was a, a concerted group by every right-wing extremist group in the country to target certain liberal senators, Frank Church, Birch Bayh, uh, John uh, Culver, George McGovern, and a whole <laughs> string of them. And, and they got most of us by targeted cam. They were running uh, against uh, the social issues, you know, the abortion problem and, uh, and other things. That abortion issue shouldn't even be in politics. It's not a political issue. It's a, a, a woman's problem. And uh, we ought to uh, leave it to the women to work that out rather than trying to bring the federal government in on it. That, that's how they knocked a lot of us off with these sideline issues. I don't remember when I was in the Senate ever mentioning the word abortion in the 18 years, but you would think that all I did in the Senate was going around advocating uh, an abortion for everybody. That, that was crazy. So is what you're saying, generally, Senator McGovern, that we haven't had a, a properly functioning liberal Democratic Party since 1980? Well, it hasn't been as good as it used to be. I think we can do better, and it's one of the reasons I wrote this book. I want the Democrats to stand up for the uh, great principles that we've had historically. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt and the uh, New Deal, John Kennedy and the uh, New uh, frontier. These were men that, that did offer us a challenge. Uh, they got through civil rights. They got through the anti-poverty program to deal with the poorest Americans. They got Medicare passed. And those are the kind of things we ought to be working on today. One of the things that I greatly admire about my friend Jim McGovern. Let me interject. Jim McGovern, no relation to the now late Senator George McGovern is the new representative in the U.S. House for Northampton and Amherst, etc. Who I think, by the way, is the best all-around member in the United States House of Representatives. I think he's a patriot. I think he's a, a liberal. I think he's, 
He's given his life to improving the lives of, uh, of other people. Now, there's an honest-to-goodness Franklin Roosevelt, John Kennedy, liberal Democrat, told many of my friends, if you want to see somebody that's working for all the people all of the time, it's uh, Congressman Jim McGovern. Well, thank you. Well, look, he's he's perhaps my closest friend in the entire world. Uh, and I began in politics working for him as a college intern uh, in his Senate office. And uh, he's a political mentor, mentor a hero. Uh, he stands for all the things that uh, I believe in, and I and I find him one of the most inspirational political figures uh, in the country. He is optimistic, and uh, he he and he's a guy who's been targeted by some of the most extreme elements of the right wing, um, and has endured an awful lot, and still is optimistic. Still believes that uh, the best days of this country are ahead. And uh, I asked him to come up to Amherst because uh, you know it's a new part of my district, and people are trying to figure out who I am. Well, you know, I, I'm very much a, a George McGovern liberal democrat a conversation from back in 2012 with the new representative to our district jim mcgovern reflecting on his political mentor with his political mentor senator george mcgovern that conversation was recorded just months before senator george mcgovern passed away in 2012 more reflection on the 17 years of me on the morning coming up looking back on 17 years of hosting the morning show here on the river two of the most intense years for me and for you and for the world we're 2020 and 2021 one of the things i'm proudest of is coming to work every day where so many people couldn't i work in a studio all by myself so it was totally safe and creating some sense of normalcy for everybody who couldn't figure out what day of the week it was since everything was canceled was something i took very seriously and trying to find some sort of salve for this trauma we were all experiencing I brainstormed with Double Edge Theater, and we created a poetry project called Love in the Time of Corona. Here are three of my favorite poems from that time. Adrift by Mark Nepo. Everything is beautiful, and I am so sad. This is how the heart makes a duet of wonder and grief. The light spraying through the lace of the fern is as delicate as the fibers of memory forming their web around the knot in my throat. The breeze makes the birds move from branch to branch as this ache makes me look for those I've lost in the next room, in the next song, in the laugh of the next stranger. In the very center, under it all, what we have that no one can take away and all that we've lost face each other. It is there that I am adrift, feeling punctured by a holiness that exists inside everything. I am so sad, and everything is beautiful. Adrift by Mark Nepo, read by Egg Tooth Productions' Linda McInerney. Double Edge Theater and the Northampton Radio Group present Love in the Time of Corona. Let's be silent by Pablo Neruda. Now we will count to 12, and we will all stay still. For once on the face of the earth, let's not speak in any language. And for a second, let's halt, and let's not move our arms so much. It will be a fragrant moment, with no rush, with no locomotives. We would all be together in sudden disquietness. Fishermen from the cold sea would not harm whales, and the man who is gathering salt 
would look at his broken hands. Those who prepare green wars, wars with gas, wars with fire, victories with no survivors, would put on a pure garment and walk about with their brothers in the shade, doing nothing. What I want should not be confused with definitive inaction. Life is only what we do, and I have nothing to do with death. If we were not able to be unanimous when keeping our lives moving so much, perhaps one time doing nothing, perhaps a huge silence might interrupt this sadness, this never understanding of ourselves and threatening each other with death. So now I'll count up to 12 and you keep quiet and I will go. Double-Edged Theater's Carlos Uriona reading Pablo Neruda's Let's Be Silent. Double-Edged Theater and the Northampton Radio Group present Love in the Time of Corona. This poem is called Mars Poetica. Imagine you're on Mars, looking at Earth, a swirl of colors in the distance. Tell us what you miss most or least. Let your feelings rise to the surface. Skim that surface with a tiny net. Now you're getting the hang of it. Tell your story slantwise, streetwise, in the disguise of an astronaut in his suit. Tell us something we didn't know before, how words mean things we didn't know we knew. Mars Poetica, read by the author, Wynne Cooper, who's also the writer behind Cheryl Crow's All I Want to Do, and is currently social distancing in southern Vermont. Three of my favorite poems that were read or created for the poetry project in the early pandemic that we called Love in the Time of Corona, a partnership with Double-Edged Theater. More looking back on the 17 years here on The Morning Show, coming up. Looking back on 17 years of doing mornings here on the river, my oldest child, Atticus, is 18. So I started the show when he was one, although we talked about his birth a lot on Kelsey's morning show. was able to record the births of both Enzo, 15, and Pax, now 9. Here is the birth of Pax. Oh, yeah. purple, your mom's favorite color. Of course, I had to call New England Patriots correspondent, my dad and Catholic Affairs correspondent, my mom. So we have a new baby. It's a dragon. We're gonna name him Daenerys Stormborn, just like in Game of Thrones. Yes, everybody's okay. He's fine. He was born at 11:25. I mean, uh, 1 12:26. Melissa's fine. Pax. We haven't decided on a middle name yet. We'll see if we can afford a middle name or not. I'd say he weighs anywhere between four and fifty pounds. Eight pounds nine ounces. Twenty and a half inches long and a huge head. Fourteen and a half inches. Average is like 12 and a half to 13. He's got a big head. I don't know who he takes after. And we got to introduce Pax to his big brothers, Atticus and Enzo. He's so cute. I love when he yawns. Yeah. You're not bored with him already? He doesn't even do anything. We should take a video and send it. Send it to who? I don't know. The television. Facebook. Oh. We even have some dolls at home that do more stuff than him when you poke them. (laughs) 
Don't do that, Enzo. How do you like being a big brother, Enzo? For the first time ever. Uh, I love it. Do you know the responsibility that goes with this? No. Neither do I. There's nothing. Don't worry about it. What do you like about being the big brother for the second time, Atticus? I love it! You don't remember meeting Enzo for the first time. I don't. But there you do. You'll always remember this moment where you met Pax for the first time. I probably won't remember it always. But luckily, really, we're making a recording of it right now. You're my honey bun sugar plum. Pummy, yummy, yum, pumpkin. You're my sweetie pie. Pax is very cute, but kind of boring right now. The only fun thing he does is make weird noises. <laughs> kind of weird Michael Jackson noises. <laughs> it always sounds half like you're choking and throwing up into your own mouth. You're like a beat, you're a beatbox machine or something. With Professora and Baby Pack sleeping. Professora, tell the story of what happened when we last left our listeners. I was so having contractions on the way home, I remember, and I was telling you, these are stronger than, than anything I'd had. I knew we were into it, but I didn't want to make dinner, so I thought we should go out to eat. So we went to Magpie. I kind of knew we were too, and I wanted to have like one last like family of four dinner. But I needed to tell you what my order was so I didn't have to talk to anybody if I was having a contraction. We got to Magpie, and lo and behold, who did you see sitting in the corner? We saw Dax Shepard. Dax Shepard is who? Crosby. From NBC TV's Parenthood. Can we just play ping pong so I can lose myself in sport? Yeah, and so there are all these other actors around. I don't really care about them. You don't care about Robert Downey I Jr. Don't really or Robert I care about Duvall? Crosby. <laughs> and there he was sitting in the corner with his baseball hat on reading like the New Yorker or something. Yeah, he was very clearly giving off that like don't talk to me vibe. But you were clearly giving off the I am going to push a baby out of my woman parts <laughs> and I'm going to talk to you anyway vibe. Yeah, I know. And it's and not, never not like that. me at all. It's so like me. It was annoying what I did. But I went and talked to him for like 30 seconds. I really didn't. He was like really nice and was going to chit chat with me longer. And I just said, nice seeing you. And I walked away. I really didn't want to bother him, but I wanted to talk to him. After seeing Dax Shepard, we named the baby Pax. I just want to go on the record and say Dax and Pax have absolutely nothing to do with each other. We went with Pax because of peace. And we were, or at least I was, confident about that for a very long time. And then meeting Dax Shepard almost ruined it. Really? For me, it did. I was like, oh, my God, everybody's going to think we named him after Dax Shepard. So the new baby's name is Pax, and his middle name has caused some controversy in some of the circles in which we move. Pax Melissa is what we went with, even though he's a boy. That's your thing. I like the name, and it took me a while to be convinced of it. I didn't love it at first. But it's your name is, is Melissa. My name is Melissa. could have gone with Melissa. Pax Professora. Yeah. But then all of a sudden, one night before I went into labor, I was up in the middle of the night, just out of nowhere, and I thought, yeah, I like that name, and I really love it now. Other people don't. Right. Pax means peace, and Melissa to me means equality. Because if we were to give a girl a boy name for a middle name, like my friend... Tommy did for his daughter Rose Thomas, nobody would blink an eye. But because the world is sexist, if you give a boy a girl name, everybody cries into their milk. Kelsey, Kim, all those can be boy or girl names. Even Chris. Do any of those names have penises or vaginas? No. They have whatever we want them to mean. In Italy, many kids are named Maria as a middle name to honor the Virgin Mary. Spanish-speaking cultures as well, but I think it's only Maria. At any rate, all y'all should get over yourselves. Mind your own quality, business. Is it or is it because you, on, you love and respect me so much? Well, that's the real reason I chose the name Melissa, but the fact that it was even somewhat radical to do that 
is unfortunate in our modern society. You should have the honor of having a child named after you as every man who's had a child practically their child is named after them in one way shape or form yeah people have been out of shape about it i think a lot of people are just most people don't say anything to us continue to not my because i will give you my mom was saying all her friends at work flipped out and asked her what she did and she said i didn't do anything it's their child they're I, worried about the playground yes future bullies let's worry about future bullies not about global warming but future playground bullies hey that's a good way to change the world let's worry about what other people know, are going to say about it's a good way us. to like raise your children to instead of like finding ways to stand up to bullies to like not do things that the bullies wouldn't like and let them bully you all right pax melissa you'll probably be up again in like one minute and if i ever have a son i think i'm gonna name him bill or george anything but sue looking back on the birth of pax from 2013 nine years ago and looking back on 17 years of doing the morning show here on the river it's Monty looking back on the 17 years I've been here doing the morning show. One of the great things about having a platform like this is celebrities who are coming to town are very willing to talk to you. And sometimes those celebrities had a major impact on your life. Like when I get to talk to Weird Al Yankovic, who was literally the first artist I ever saw live in concert in a big setting opening up for the Monkees back in the late 80s. Weird Al was coming to the Calvin, and he was my guest, and I was thrilled. Al TV, another one of those music video kind of shows you watch on television sometimes. Weird Al Yankovic. The other part of what you do, Al, that I have loved for a long time is your Al TV stuff. So there was the early Al TV on MTV in its heyday, but even recently on MTV, you know, these fake interviews with celebrities, like your Eminem interview. Oh, yeah. I have... At least three times a year, pull somebody into my office and say, oh, wait, you haven't seen the Al TV interview of Eminem? You got to watch this. Right now, it's time for our exclusive interview with Mr. Marshall Mathers, also known as Eminem, also known as Missy Misdemeanor Elliot. Uh, I'm sorry, should I call you Marshall or Missy? Marshall, you know what I'm saying? Hope it wasn't out of line to ask. No, it wasn't. You know what I'm saying? I know what you're saying, because, you know, I wouldn't want you to be offended. And I'm not. Uh, you know what I'm saying? I know what you're saying. You know what I'm saying? I know what you're saying. You know what I'm saying? Yes, I do. <laughs> Where does all this come from? Because I've stolen that too, okay? I've stolen that from you too, Al. That, that's fine. You know, I, I, it just, I, it's hard to say. It comes out of my sick, twisted brain. I, I just listen to the voices in my head, and they, they make me do strange things. But yeah, Al TV was when I did that on MTV for years and years, and then they stopped uh, being MTV. Weird Al Yankovic playing the Calvin Theater this Sunday. I have to give a speech tonight at the Amherst Area Chamber of Commerce Awards Dinner, and I, I'm literally thinking about taking the name Amherst and making a parody song about the town to the tune of Love Hurts by Nazareth. Oh, nice. Amherst. Yes, does this get the Al seal of approval? Yeah, that Should sounds I, good. Is that how they come to you when you decide you're going to make, you know, there's some songs that you... Oh, Nazareth? Well, yeah. Does Jesus of Nazareth come to you to tell you what you should do song-wise? <laughs> no, is, there, is it like just a play on words that sparks... Some of the parody type things that you do, and you say, "Oh, this is makes perfect sense with this song." Well, as you would know from a seasoned parody writer yourself, sometimes it is in fact just a play on words or a pun. Sometimes it's it's you know sometimes it's taking a concept and and doing the polar opposite. Uh, sometimes it's taking a subject matter uh, and then just finding a song which may in fact be a classic rock song that that helps tell the story. Uh, there's a lot of different ways to approach it, and you just try to find an angle that uh, seems funny. Weird Al Yankovic, a recent one that you've done is the 
palindrome song, Bob, to the oh, tune of Subterranean Homesick Blues, which I've now used as a demonstrative device with my children because we both um, love palindromes. And I was actually kicked out of the Art Honor Society for, among other reasons, doing an art project based on Go Hang a Salami, I'm a Lasagna Hog, which is how you end that song, which, if people don't know, is the same forwards and backwards. Right. Go Hang a Salami, I'm a Lasagna Hog. They thought it was a double entendre, which even at that time, I was not sure what a double entendre was. <laughs> but you got in trouble for it. I got in trouble for it. That and I stole a hot air balloon, but that is a whole other story. I, I think lasagna hogs are in people's imagination. Was there ever anybody, Al, that you went to and said, I've got this great idea for a song, and then they said, no, don't do it? Yeah, I, I, I hate to focus on the negative, but everybody always wants to know, who's turned you down? And, and really the only person who's consistently uh, said no over the years has been Prince. Uh, and, and, and truth, that was a long time ago. I, I asked him several times in the 80s, and he never was into it. And I, I haven't really asked him lately, but I, I would hope that he's grown a little bit of a sense of humor, but back then he just didn't want to hear about it. He put Dave Chappelle on the cover of his most recent song. Well, see, that, that's a good so, indication. Yeah, that's a good indication. And I saw on Jimmy Fallon's show that, or no, it was Fallon on Leno talking about how Prince took Fallon out to play table tennis. Which well, maybe I've, he's loosening up. Who knows? Which I've heard from your white and nerdy song that you're pretty good at. Happy Days is my favorite theme song. I can sure kick your butt in a game of ping pong. So maybe <laughs> you should go and play ping pong with Prince. <laughs> that would be a whole web series. Don't you think ping pong with Prince? <laughs> that would be an ama- it would be the number one web series. I can almost guarantee it. Well, Weird Al, this is the culmination of um, my life's work that I have finally gotten to speak to you who performed at the first big show I went to in 1987, Weird Al and the Monkees, and have sent my brain into that sort of bizarre place. And I just wanted to thank you, and I hope you have a great show. On. Thank you. I feel exactly the same way. And once again, I apologize about your hearing and, and warping your entire life. That's from when I got to live out a childhood dream and talk to the first artist I ever saw live in concert opening up for the Monkees. Weird Al Yankovic, back when Prince was still alive, back in 2013. One of, if not the most emotional day of my 17 years doing the morning show was the day after Election Day 2016, when Donald Trump became president-elect. It's the only day besides my last day where I was drinking in the morning on the air, and only a little bit. I opened up the airwaves for listeners to feel what they would feel, and I couldn't help but feel what I was feeling with the listeners and my family as well. Good morning, the river. Good morning. I'm going to try not to cry. Feel free to. I've already done it like 10 times on the air today. I, I just feel like everything I hold dear is screwed. You know, the environment, people, him making fun of people that are different, the wall, just everything. And I, I, I just, I don't get it. And he's, he, everyone's following him and believing it. And, I heard him yesterday talking about, you know, whatever you dream for, for your family, I vote for me. Anyway, I, I woke up so many times during the night and checked the results. And this morning, it was just, I just started to cry. And um, I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, the next four years, I'm going to have to be, you know what, number four. I'm really, and then I'm trying not to because people have a right, but I'm so angry at the ignorance of people that, you know, if he's so wrong on so many different levels and so not a good person on so many levels, and they still fell for it. And I I just, you know, I'm not a huge fan of Hillary either. I love Bernie, um, but the lesser of two evils would have been much better. 
I just fear for our country. I fear for our environment. Yes. I, I fear for, you know, Roe versus Wade. I, be, I fear, you know, for young women who are going to, you know, need an abortion for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And more and more facilities are shutting down mm-hmm. and he thinks they should be punished. It's like they we're <sighs> going into the dark ages again. And, um, I, I, anyway, I, I'm really, really so upset and crying, and I, I, I'm so glad that you're letting people call up and say what they need to say. Well, so um, it's the least I can do, and I, I want to affirm your, you know, feelings. We're all feeling what we're feeling, and we need to keep, let that out. Yeah. But we can't let it take over, you know, we can't let the darkness win. We can let it have today. <laughs> yeah, we, have have to de- today. we have to decide a good, a good time to cut it off. Yeah, protest, protest, yeah. protest. Well, thank you so much for sharing and being so open about your feelings. You, you take care and uh, feel the love. You feel too. The love. <laughs> take care. Morning, the river. Good morning, Monty. This is Joanne, and I am coping with my grief and my fear and sadness by turning to God. And I just wanted you all to know that there is a um, gathering for people who just need to be together at Edwards Church tonight at uh, 6 o'clock. People of faith, no faith, just come together and remember what's good about people. I think that's a great thing to do. I think that's what I've been reaching out to listeners to try to do today for my own sake. So I think getting together face-to-face with people at a place like Edwards is is a great idea. Thanks for telling us about that. Yeah. Just wanted you to know. Well, thank you. Have, have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Morning, the river. Hi, Monty. It's Sarah. How are you? Hanging in there, Sarah. How are you? Good. Glad to hear it. Listen, it may be too early, but I have one of those um, old newspaper things, Reflection for the Day. Yeah. Attributed to Ernest Henry Shackleton. Ah, Optimism is true moral moral courage. So, I think that's we'll a gr- that's a great mindset to keep in mind. But I also want let I want people to know that they should. I think they can can feel any way they want to feel, especially right after oh, no, something. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But that if we let go of the optimism, if we let go of the optimism, what else do we got? Right. Right. Yeah. Thank you, Sarah. Right. Yeah, you're welcome. More on the river. Hi. Hello. How are you doing? Uh, not good. I'm trying to hold it together for the radio, but... I don't even know what to say to the kids. I just keep crying. Tell them that it's okay to be sad. Yeah. And that that that'll go away and that we all have to work to make sure that things are okay for everybody yeah I'm playing your song in 20 seconds what song Soy Yo by Bomba Estereo no Morning the River hello hello mom told me that Trump is yeah what do you think Atticus I'm not happy me either, buddy. Can you play Dear Mr. President? By Pink? Yeah. No. no. You can't use, you can't exploit 
people's emotions and this victory, this loss for America to try to request pop songs. You do the work to fight against oppression, and then I will play Pink on the radio. Can you play Why We Built the Wall then? I already played that, but yeah, I'll play it again. Yay. That was from the morning after Election Day 2016, where I had picked all female artists to play that morning to celebrate the first elected female president, but had to scratch the whole show and just turn the airwaves over to you. Looking back on 17 years of mornings on the river. Looking back on my years hosting the morning show here, in all of those 17 years, there's only been one segment that I let an outside editor have editorial control over in the final edit. And that was the recording of the birth of my second son, Enzo Belmonte. I take you back to that Professora executive produced edit of the birth of Enzo back in 2013. It's 8.30 at night on July 28th. The wheels have been set in motion. Melissa believes she's going into labor. Now it's 9.30. We're trying to get some sleep just in case this goes all night. I've been sent to get a glass of unsweetened soy milk. Now it's 9 o'clock in the morning. Baby has not come. Labor has slowed down. What do you think, honey? Is this baby really going to come today or what? I'm starting to get really sick of that question. Uh, hi, this is Chris Belmonte. My wife, Melissa Belmonte, is supposed to have a baby there. She is in labor, we think. No, we don't. We just wanted to tell you she doesn't want to call from the midwife right now because she's doing the best she can to sleep. You know what I mean? She doesn't want to have to talk to a midwife in the middle of the night. Yesterday, uh, she had three reasonably strong contractions in a row about eight minutes apart. Mm-hmm. Right. We'll call um, when, when we're on the way in, basically. Okay. Bye. 32 hours after labor began, we're finally at the hospital. Is it easy to figure out how many centimeters it is in there? That's the real weird question. Yeah, I wonder if you've yeah. got your fingers in there. Yeah, Like yeah, a mini yeah. ruler. Well, you really, yeah, I know, exactly. Is this one big push? Talk to me. 
the only segment in the 17 years I've been on the radio that I let someone else have a final say on the edit. And that say went to Professora Belmonte after the birth of our son Enzo. And the only thing she wanted to edit was less moaning from her. I get it. Looking back on 17 years hosting mornings here on the river. Looking back on 17 years of doing mornings here, my children have grown up on the radio. Well, with me on the radio and them at home, but with me exploiting them for entertainment purposes. As a parent, it's a treasure trove of what your children used to be like. I have a recording of the very first time Atticus was on the radio back in 2005. <coughs> Somebody doesn't like that song. Cry right into this microphone, Atticus. Isn't that the cutest sound you ever heard? Nico Case, new music. The Tigers have spoken. 93.9 The River. Oh, the irony of that being the artist is not lost on me. I'm Monty. I'm holding my almost four-week-old little boy Atticus. I'm swinging him at the same time, trying to get him to settle down. My wife came in for the lunch hour, which was really, really nice, and that was his uh, radio debut. I'm trying to keep him out of the radio business. It's tough. But you never know. He could get the bug. Coming up, another long stretch and the forecast. 93.9 The River. One of my favorite Atticus moments of all time on the air, which was really just something that happened in real life that I recorded, is when I came home from work one day and he had changed our answering machine, remember those, to all Spanish. Usted ha recibido 19 mensajes. Mensaje. Uno. Hey, you guys. This is Sarah. Hey, dude. Uh, How, why is our answering machine in Spanish? Because I like it in Spanish. It's going to help mommy speak Spanish. How did you get it into Spanish? There's a lot of numbers. There's a lot of things. I don't know what to do. Well, to make it in English, you have to press a lot of numbers again to make it into English. Which numbers? Well, you only have to put, press this, 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 this. So if I hit basically every button in random order on the answer machine, it'll all of a sudden be in English again? Well, it might not, but if it is, don't leave it like that. You think all these button pushing is going to get back into English? Is there like an English button on here? No. What is it? What is she saying? What does this mean? Uno means one. Yeah, I knew that. I know what she's saying. Blah, blah. That's what it sounds like to me. Yeah. What the heck does that mean? I both Atticus and I have learned a lot more Spanish since 2009. And like I said, Atticus has kind of grown up on the radio from his first cries four weeks into his life to getting his license. Atticus Christopher Natalucci Belmonte just got his learner's permit and we are teaching him how to drive. Oh God. Start turning hard, fast. Yep, okay, stop. Woo! Put it in reverse. Okay, now straighten it out. Ooh. You're trying to navigate the car around this snowbank. I got snowbank. that, but it's so, hard to do. Back up again. Maybe try to swing wide now. Try to go what? swing in like that. What do you mean by swing? Just fold in the cheese. <laughs> what does fold in the cheese mean? He folds it in. Should I put it on the gas? No. <laughs> Lift the foot off the brakes. There's only two pedals. I got my driver's license last week. 
Is that a song? Yeah. I got my driver's license last week. Tell us about what happened on your driver's test. Tell us about a little bit of the training that we did right beforehand. Well, we did a lot of practice for parallel parking, which was kind of a, a mixed bag. And so the way they taught me to parallel park was you drive up next to the car. They didn't really push being parallel to the car. I think that would but have been helpful to know. I made that you very... You pushed that. Yeah, thank that, you for yeah. that. It's called parallel parking for a reason. Parallel parking. They never Because really... you come in at an angle, I'd be like, you're not going to be able to parallel park and not even parallel. Okay, well, I passed my test, so we don't need to talk about that. Okay. And now Atticus is turning 18, looking at colleges, and creating incredible immersive theater pieces. A look back at... Some of the moments I brought my family into the picture in the 17 years I've been hosting the show here in Mornings on the River. Looking back on 17 years of mornings here on the river, you caught my very last show. A couple whose wedding I went to cover just after equal marriage was passed in Massachusetts joined me live in the studio. Here is that wedding, the wedding of Trouble and Gouge in Greenfield from 2007. Is there a wedding going on? They didn't throw it that way, did they? Oh my God. I'm so sorry. I'm usually really punctual. Oh, good. Sorry. We are gathered here today to witness this coming together of Kathy Gouge and Trouble Aaron Ann Manderson, whose hearts, spirits, and even toes are entwined as one. Love is the reason you will become one. Gouge will speak <clears throat> to Trouble. Thank you for taking a chance with me. Thank you for practicing patience and understanding when I'm grumpy. Thank you for nurturing my heart back to health. For this, I will love you always and forever. I promise to keep you safe. I promise to honor you and our commitment. I promise to respect you. I promise to provide you with a peace-filled home, regardless of obstacles we may face. I am grateful for you in my life, for your caring nature, for your hippie spirit, <laughs> for your sensitivity and insight, and I'm thrilled to become your wife. When I look at you, I just see a happier me. But thank you for that. Yeah. <laughs> That's all I have to say. <laughs> 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 That's all with this ring, with this ring, I vow to cherish. I vow to cherish comfort, comfort, support, support, and inspire you. And inspire you. And I will love you always and forever. I will love you always and forever. Gouch, gouch. Please wear this ring. Please wear this ring with joy and love. With joy and love. And think of me. And think of me. And this moment. And this moment. I will love you always and forever. I will love you always and forever. And now, by the power vested in me, by the governor of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, I now pronounce you married. So we are at the, the town clerk's office in Greenfield. I've never been to a wedding. 
in, in an office. I think it's very fitting I got married in an office because I've been a secretary all my life. Yeah, what? <laughs> totally Yeah, maybe a church would seem like out of place. Oh, completely in yeah. my life. Are you kidding? How do you feel? I feel great. I'm just thrilled. I feel a little weak in my knees. Your, your vows are beautiful. And I'm a big sap and I almost started to choke up. So yeah. I'm glad I, I held it in. Though. Yeah, it, it's just a wonderful, wonderful moment. You don't have to be quiet just because I'm <laughs> Trouble. Lady. Now, wow. is your name legally Trouble now that you just got... No, they would only change my last name. Now I still have to pay the fee to be Trouble. Oh. Here come all. And that was the champagne. You can I'm going to steal it. Gouch, tell me a little bit of the story about how you and Trouble met and how you ended up here in the Valley. We have to back up to my 50th birthday, and I threw a relatively big bash at my house in San Francisco. We had many guests, and one of the guests was a friend of Trouble's, So then, and her name is Heron. And Heron invited me to go out on New Year's Eve with a group of gals. And I said, oh, I don't know, Heron, you know. She said, it will be an adventure. And that's all I needed to hear. And Trouble's there. So we're talking and having some drinks and getting ready to go out. And Trouble gets all dolled up. And she turns to me. She says, brush my hair. <laughs> Very fast. <laughs> I always get them. <laughs> so I, was, I brushed her hair and everything. And and so sparks flew all night long. And we that's said, a euphemism for hot sex. And I told her, I said, you know, I'm moving. If you want to hang out, that's cool. But I'm I'm moving to Massachusetts. I moved out here and still wanted to have trouble in my life. And she took a chance to come out and be here. She left California behind where she's born and raised her family and everything. And it's just been a beautiful, wonderful, wonderful time in life here. Yes, it has. Thanks for bringing me here. Yeah. <laughs> that was so sweet. Gouch, you have a blessed, not only day of your wedding, but a blessed marriage. Thank you so very, very much, my friend. Let me give you a hug. And trouble. Yes. Don't do anything weird. Well. No, I mean, I do everything weird. I wouldn't be me if I didn't do something weird. <laughs> Thanks for being here. It's a pleasure. We love the river. I didn't make her say that. The Wedding of Trouble and Gouch in Greenfield from 2007, just a few months after equal marriage had been passed in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Looking back on 17 years here with Mornings on the River, be it on a radio station or with the legendary Jerky Boys CD collection, I've always been a fan of prank calls. And prank calls were a part of my show for a period of time, until I basically found out it's illegal for me to record somebody if they don't know they're being recorded. However, I did get several really fun prank calls out of it, and I think everybody involved in these are good sports, including retired salesman extraordinaire for the river, Bob Diamond, who I called over and over and over again on all of his phone numbers, his home, his cell phone, his Greenfield office, his Northampton office, using a Napoleon Dynamite soundboard. Hi, can I help you? Hello? 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 Who's this? How's it going? Hello? How's it going? Good. Uh, who is this? Is Pedro there? Uh, is you wrong? I have the wrong number. How's your neck? You have the wrong number. Sorry. Is Pedro there? Pedro? How's your neck? Who is this? Hey. 
They kept trying to attack my cousins. What the heck would you do in a situation like that? Good afternoon, WHEI. Bear Country Dam 1240. Can I help you? Yes, is Bob Diamond there? Sure. Hi, can I help you? What kind of bike do you have? What kind of bike do I have? What kind of bike do you have? I have all different kinds of bikes. Who's this? You ever take it off any sweet jumps? Uh, when I was young and stupid. Can I try it really quick? Who's this? Will you just come get me? Who is this? Can you bring me my chapstick? <laughs> Bye. This is a girl. Hi, can I help you? Grandma just called and said you're supposed to go home. Hello? Grandma just called and said you're supposed to go home. Who's this? She says she doesn't want you here when she gets back because you've been ruining everybody's lives and eating all our steak. <laughs> you don't have to stay here with us. We're not babies. Who is this? Is Pedro there? No, Pedro's not here. Can you bring me my chapstick? I also called my mom using a Napoleon Dynamite soundboard. Hello? 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 Who's this, Chris? How's it going? Who is this? How's your neck? Who are you, who are you calling? Is Grandma there? Are you, who are you calling? Is Grandma there? I think you have the wrong, there? I think you have the wrong number. Can you bring me my chapstick? Can I try it really quick? This is a girl. Hello? Hello? What kind of bike do you have? Trace this call. I love how she says trace this call at the end of that. Like the FBI is always listening and tracing any phone call that any person requests to be traced. I also loved prank calling my former general manager, Dave Musanti, with a very strange and interesting offer using, again, an internet soundboard. Hello, my name is Dave Musanti. How can I help you? Hello. This is Henry Watkins calling from the zoo, and I need to find out what time you want your koala bear. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> A baby koala bear. You signed up to adopt one. And we had dozens of these babies and we're delivering them all today. What time is good for you? I don't know what you're saying. Thanks. I'm trying to do my job here, you know? These things are so cute. They're two months old. I'm totally housebroken. I don't quite know how to respond to you. What? I'll talk to you later. Thanks. You don't want the bear? So I just prank called my mother. Well, I didn't mean to prank call her. I was really just calling her to ask her a question about a wedding that we're going to this summer. But she wasn't there. So rather than leave a message, I prank called her and I said something akin to this. Yes, this is Home Depot Mansfield. I'm calling for Kathleen or Christopher Belmont in regards to their Home Depot credit card. Somebody used your Home Depot credit card to purchase a Kubota chainsaw that has been implicated in an incident in which endangered trees had been brutally cut down. We don't know if you made the purchase of this Kubota chainsaw or not, but if you could please call Home Depot Mansfield immediately. Uh, they're 
there is litigation pending, a potentially a subpoena. Uh, we'd like to straighten this out. Please call us at 508-555-7133. Thank you. So there was no way I thought my mother would believe that that was true, but uh, actually she did believe it was true, and she just called to ask if it was me because it seemed like something I would do, and for some reason I was able to keep a straight face, and uh, now she's calling that number to find out about the chainsaw, so I gotta find out how that all went. Hello. Ma. Mom. Before you get too far. Um, that was a prank call by me, Ma. <laughs> no, but I don't want you to take it too far. Did you think, did I do a good job? She hung up on me. She was on the phone with Home Depot. She didn't sound happy that I prank called her. Hello? <laughs> yeah? Yes! <laughs> Why? An endangered tree and a chainsaw? That's like the most far-fetched story ever. Why do you think I called you back right then? Just to double check and make sure you weren't getting too involved in the plot. <laughs> what was that other number I gave you? Mom, an endangered tree and a chainsaw? <laughs> you thought you were going to be subpoenaed for why? I have no idea why you didn't recognize my voice. You must have wanted to believe that trees had been butchered by a chainsaw and that somebody was going to Why? You just get a new credit card and then you get like 10% uh, off. Yeah, you do. Off your next purchase. Are you going to be upset if I talk about it on the air tomorrow? Like, let's say I'm recording what I'm saying right now on the phone to you. No, I am doing that. <laughs> Ridiculous. Yes, he would. I made that up on the spot. <laughs> A few of the fun prank phone calls I had back earlier in my tenure as morning show host and back before I knew it was technically illegal to record somebody without telling them. Looking back on 17 years of mornings here on the river, the music scene is obviously a huge part of what we do, shining a light on all the great things that are happening. The music scene has changed drastically since I started. When I started, everybody played the Iron Horse Music Hall in Northampton. Whether or not that club will ever open again is still up for debate. However, longtime Valley Advocate editor and former radio host here, David Sokol, wrote a book with one of the founders of the Iron Horse back in 2014. I bring to you my conversation with the two of them. Jordy Harold is the founder of the Iron Horse, the now legendary club on Center Street in Northampton. Jordy just released a new biography of his time at the Iron Horse, co-written by longtime Valley Advocate music writer David Sokol. It's called Positively Center Street. It's filled with wonderful pictures and posters, calendars, and stories of some of the artists who've come through the Iron Horse. Jordy Harold. There is an Archie. Archie Shep anecdote it was interesting in that, you know, pre prefacing that is that the, the Valley was rich in musicians who didn't necessarily get to play a lot in the Valley, you know, and, and that was, you know, particularly true in jazz. It was great to have a, a place where those events could happen, you know, not in jazz clubs in, in Paris or, you know, Germany, but they could, you know, they could happen right, right here at home. Early on in the history of the club, Archie Shep did agree to play. He played several times, but there was one time that he was scheduled to play and it was a winter evening and it was a beating down snow outside. No one 
especially me, likes to cancel a show. And so uh, sometime around four o'clock in the afternoon, I made the decision not to cancel that show. It was a good call not to cancel. 100% of the audience showed up and it got to be 5.30, 6.30, 7.30. And now we're past showtime and the headliner isn't there. Well, it being someone who is of international stature, but lives in town and a kind of a pretext email era, you know, I said like, well, I'd call him up. <laughs> and so I call Archie at home in his listed Amherst number. And much to my disappointment, he answers. <laughs> I, said, I said, this is not a good sign that you are answering the phone. What's going on here? And he goes like, well, have you looked outside? I said, yes, I've looked outside. He said, well, it's snowing. And I said, Archie, you've been teaching at the university for the better part of a decade. You live in New England. It's a little bit of snow. It's like, well, I'm not going to be coming. I was like, well, I don't think that's acceptable because there's, you know, a hundred plus people here who are here and they got here through the snow and they've come from Hartford and they've come from Boston and they've come from Brattleboro and they've come from Albany and they are here to see you. He said, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right. You know, half hour goes by, 40 minutes go by and he's not there. And I call again and he answers again. I said, why are you answering? Didn't you? Get in the car to come. He says, I did. I got as far as the bottom of my driveway and I hit my mailbox. Okay, well, <laughs> these things do happen in life. You know, can you get the car out? No, it's stuck. Well, call a cab. So where am I going to get a cab? You call the cab. It's not like there's yellow cabs <laughs> cruising around in Amherst <laughs> that you're going to hail at the end of your driveway. He calls a cab. And sure enough, you know, 25 minutes later, the cab shows up and the guy comes in and goes, I got Archie Shep in the car, but I'm not letting out of the car until somebody pays his cab fare. And he says that he would settle up with you later, but you should pay it. So I pay the cabbie. I tip the cabbie. Archie comes in, of course, and Archie needs something to eat and needs to get settled. And the show is getting, you know, I don't know what we were. We were hours after scheduled showtime and everyone in there has a babysitter and there's 12 <laughs> inches of snow, 14 inches of snow developing. You know, some people in the audience start leaving. And I'm, you know, Archie's having his sandwich or whatever it is. I'm like, Archie's like people leaving. I'll take care of you at the end of the evening. Don't worry about that. Don't rush me. So finally, they go on and play a blistering show. People are ecstatic. And at the end of the evening, I hand him the envelope. And he says, I'm not counting this. Just tell me how much is in there. You know, and I think he was supposed to get paid for argument's sake, $1,000. And I said, well, there's $875 in there. He's like, $875? I'm supposed to get paid $1,000. He's like, you're the man that told me, pay the cabbie, tip the cabbie. You're the man that told me you weren't going to go on. If people left, you would take care of me. And he just started peeling off bills and putting them on the table. 20, 40, 60, 80. How much do you want to just come here and kiss me? Jordy Harrell, the founder of The Iron Horse, his new memoir, Positively Center Street, co-written with David Sokol, the longtime writer for The Valley Advocate, and music aficionado extraordinaire. You co-wrote this with Jordy Harold. What's your, or one of your favorite stories that come out of the storied history of that hallowed club? One of the things that I love about this book is almost the backstory, what was going on in Jordy's head when the idea of the Iron Horse was actually being... Was there something going on in my head? <laughs> it was actually being conceived. In the book, there's there's a story about Jordy, who's just out of college at the time, and visiting friends in London, I think. It was really during a trip to London that he went to a club called the Troubadour, where the idea kind of hit him, mm -hmm. and he had this kind of fantasy about creating 
a club, really a, a coffee house back home, kind of in the spirit of, of the of the Troubadour. I just love the way that that experience, as well as the experiences that, that Jordy had growing up in New York City in a poem where his parents, who were teachers, loved music and had hootenannies at their house. But all this idea, the idea of flooding the house with music, which was what a, a sign said in the kitchen of his, of his home growing up. And, you know, sort of taking that and, and transposing that to the early days of the Iron Horse and up till today where there's, there's something on the wall there that says music alone shall live. It was all these things that kind of helped form the initial concept for the club. In the book, we talk about, Jordy talks about a a possible predecessor to the Iron Horse that never took off, but that had it actually happened in Amherst, there probably would not have ultimately been the Iron Horse. So there was a lot of serendipitous things that kind of worked together to create this space on Center Street starting in 1979. Writer David Sokol and Iron Horse founder Jordy Harold, looking back on the history of that hallowed hall, which may or may not ever reopen, the Iron Horse. And looking back on 17 years of mornings here with me on the river. Looking back on 17 years of mornings with me on the river, one of my favorite interviews was with the uber funky George Clinton. You are arguably the funkiest person living today. You've been sampled more than almost anybody else in the entire world. You created all of 90s hip hop. Some of the money you have recouped from that era where they ripped you off. Some of it you have not and are still embroiled in all sorts of legal battles. I'm a 30-something-year-old white dude from New England, and I thought that the best thing I could possibly do when I get to talk to George Clinton is get some funk instruction. So what what do I need to do to be funky? You got to get two booties. Two booties? You got to have two booties. Okay. When you come to our show, you know, you, you know, you get your two booties, show up there, and be ready to let go. Is one of the booties my own booty, or do I bring two other booties besides my booty? You want two for you, and you want two for who else you bring. All right. Everybody needs two booties. I'm going to tell my wife that George Clinton told me that I need two booties, and what's she going to do? You're Dr. Funkenstein. You can't argue with that. Can't argue with that. That's it. Sound crazy, but crazy is a prerequisite. I'm going to go down a list of people and things, and you tell me whether they are funky or not, George Clinton, okay? Okay. Kanye West, funky or not? Oh, no, he can use a little funk. He got good grooves, make good records, but he can go to funk school for a minute. For a minute, at least. But his wife has two booties, strangely enough. Oh, she already got two booties. She got two booties with, uh, already, she didn't even need to bring two booties when Kanye was there. Got a, a pretty booty. That's true. And we've all seen it an awful lot. Most booties ain't that pretty. Okay, Beck. Is Beck funky? You don't know about Beck. Beck has been funky. See? Beck was, Beck was funky when he did that. Why don't you just kill me? Yeah, the loser song. So Beck's been funky from it. the get-go. And you, George Clinton, saying Kanye, not funky. Beck funky. I love it. No, no. Beck, believe me, I've seen Beck do Prince. It ain't no joke. A lot of people don't know. Where you be coming from? I love Beck. We love Beck here at this station. We love your music. We play, we have a Funky Fridays. Every Friday night, we play six hours of funk music, and you are all over it, George Clinton. Well, you know we got a new record called Shake the Gate with 33 songs. Well, there you go. That will take up probably one whole Funky Friday night, six hours okay. long. The Parliament Funkadelic songs are great ones when I need to run to get a cup of coffee because they're all six-plus minutes, which I love. Tons of funk. Make sure you get up on the stage, though, when we do Atomic Dog. That's your that's your most sampled song, is it not? That's the one that Snoop Dogg, yeah. the Snoop Doggy Dog. 
got that bow wow wow yippee yo yippee yay from. That's all you. Yep. There would be no 90s hip hop and many other songs if it wasn't for George Clinton. I'm going to ask you some more funky things and you tell me whether they're funky or not. What about Beyonce you- though? Is Beyonce funkier yes, than back? Lord. Yes, Lord. She's funky, period. I mean, even when the girls, you know, were together, they were funky. Yeah, Destiny's like Child. She ain't missed a beat yet. What about Fifty Shades of Grey? Is that funky? Check that out. Yeah, I haven't seen that. All right, yet. so we're going to take a beat on the decisiveness of that funkiness. What about anything over three feet of snow? Funky or not funky? Well, you funky if you can hang over three feet of snow. <laughs> okay. Vladimir Putin, funky, not funky? You know what? We just played in Russia at his radio station. Was he there? No, he wasn't there, but they let us on. So that's funky, I guess. That's got to be funky. They let all of us walk through the... Red Square, you know, jamming, you know, and they, you don't do that in Red Square. No, you don't do that. You turn the Red Square black. Hey, I'm telling you, they paint the Red Square black. There you go, just like the white turning the White House black, which actually right. happened. <laughs> that well, then Barack Obama is Barack Obama funky or not? Okay, I, you, you can go back and look at Obama's. You see him on Soul Train. He's on Soul Train dancing. I didn't know that. I have to check that out. All right, I found a clip of some guy that looks like Obama dancing on Soul Train, but I cannot verify that that is actually true. Oh, no, he's been... You heard him sing Al Green's song? I've heard him sing Al Green songs. Yeah, so you're right. He is... I guess he's funky then. Oh, no, he's funky. What about George Clinton? Not you, George Clinton, but the vice president under Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. I don't know. He probably was, you know, in my family somewhere along the line. But he probably ain't funky, though. Probably not funky. Probably like a slave owner. So that definitely eliminates you from any sort of level of funkiness. Yeah, right. Totally not. What about probably my my owner? (laughs) What about other Clinton family members like Hillary Clinton? Funky, not funky. Wait, you saw you saw uh, paint the White House black? You ever see the video? Yeah. Well, you saw. Sorry, Bill, in that dancing, baby. There you go. All right. Yo, listen to the real Clint. Bill Clint, Bill Clint. So I guess Hillary Clinton is funky. And Bill played a saxophone. You don't play the saxophone unless you funk. Yeah, he plays it okay. He's not great, but I'll, I'll give it Sorry. to you. He's more like Kenny G. <laughs> Kenny G only has a sliver of funk, if any. <laughs> He's got more than Kenny G, though. That's true. And I, Chelsea Clinton came backstage to see you one time, and this was when your funk was driven largely by crack and LSD, and you had to hide oh, the crack yeah. pipe. Is that true? Um, it burnt my hand. I'm trying to hide it. <laughs> From the first daughter. I, when I look at the picture, I see the picture. My hand's not burning right now. Oh, man. Talking to George Clinton, who's bringing his P-Funk to Pearl Street on Saturday night. First, they got to shake the gate. Shake the gate. Bring two booties, and we'll help them shake the gate. Okay, so in my funk instructions, I know that I got to bring two booties. I got to shake the gate. You don't do the crack or LSD anymore. Do you have any sort of no, funk no, fuel no. that I can turn that's, to? That's not even funk no more. That's not even good funk. I got some medical marijuana there. Medical marijuana? What about like Limburger I, cheese? That's a particularly funky cheese. Oh, yeah, that's real funk. Okay, so Limburger cheese, you know, I, medical marijuana, like, I, two booties. Shake the gate. And a glass of Malbec wine. Oh, now you're speaking my language, George Clinton. Argentinian Malbec? That's it. Any particular? You got, funk, you got the funk. That's any Argentina Malbec. Have you tried any Cab Francs, George Clinton? Because I think Cab Franc is the funkiest of wines. It often smells like two booties. <laughs> Try it out, George Clinton. Looking back on a 2015 interview with the ever funky George Clinton. Looking back on 17 years here on the river, 
The first year I did the show, every single week, I did a news parody song called News in the Blues, channeling my aspirational Weird Al. Here are a couple of those News in the Blues songs, like the time back in 2006 when Brady got injured and was out for the season. Brady, you're our knight in shining shoulder pants, and we love you. But now we're hearing word that you are gone. Of course, we feel badly for Tom about the injury, and uh, you hate to see anyone go down. My heart was still broken from when you didn't win the Super Bowl. Now my hopes and dreams will have to wait till next fall. Maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. Me, I thank God. It's got to be more than this. song that I did for News in the Blues had to do with how warm it was around Christmas time back in 2006. I got some local celebrities, some impersonated celebrities, and the actual Dar Williams to participate in this silly Christmas song parody. It's Christmas time, but I haven't worn my mittens yet. Johnny Memphis. It's Christmas time, and I feel like I could break a sweat. Kelsey Flynn. And I think it's kind of frightening that the temperature's so high. It's 51 degrees at Christmas time. Northampton Mayor Claire Higgins. But say a prayer. Now that we're getting a new government That they'll do something To stop the world from warming up Oh, we'll never have a white Christmas Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, or Ramadan Vice President Al Gore's the only Darn, take it out. I invented the internet, and now I've warned you of your doom. Have you seen my movie, An Inconvenient Truth? And there won't be snow in Africa this Christmas time. And there won't be snow in Massachusetts, too. Ladies and gentlemen, Dar Williams! 
When will it ever snow? I think the skiers want to know. It's freaking warm at Christmas time this year. Freaking warm. It won't snow at Christmas time this year. Thank you, Kelsey Flynn. Thank you, Al Gore. Thank you, Mayor Claire Higgins. Thank you, Dar Williams. Those are some of the news and the blues. A parody song I did every week the first year I was on the air 17 years ago. Looking back on 17 years here on the river, one of my favorite interviews was with the legendary Sam Elliott, who came to Turner's Falls to film a movie written and directed by now one of my your friends, who I only met on the film set for this movie when they were filming inside the Shea Theater. You know, the title is the obvious, because that, that is what in fact happens. Hitler meets his demise, although on a different level than all of us know from the history books. Right. The Bigfoot meets his demise as well, and he's a little different from what we know from the things that have been concocted on television over the years. It's a very interesting piece with a lot of surprises. Robert's a very capable director. He's kind of learning as he goes, but he's like a sponge. And like I said, he's brilliant and smart people pick it up pretty quick. I have a feeling he's going to be a very successful director in the long run. That is the unmistakable voice of actor Sam Elliott, who stars in The Man Who Killed Hitler and then The Bigfoot filming in Turner's Falls of all places. Written, directed, produced, and edited by young Turner's Falls native filmmaker, Bob Kraskowski. There's a man named Douglas Trumbull that's involved in this thing who has a studio a couple of hours from here. Doug Trumbull did, you know, he's a special effects man. He's a genius, another genius. Mm -hmm. And he's kind of mentored Bob. Doug's, you know, among others, the listeners might be aware of 2001 Space Odyssey and close encounters of a third kind and for that kind of talent to come to a little film like this speaks well of the project itself and and of the filmmaker Robert. I don't know Bob that well but he's been fiercely loyal to me he ran into me on the street and said Monty I know how bad you want to talk to people on the film I know how you want to interview Sam Elliott who I've been calling the great white mustachioed whale that I've been pursuing all around the valley as in and out right as you're about to, to skedaddle back yeah. And he's been texting me over and over again, the director of the film, totally ensconced in the busyness, not forgetting about Rinky Dink Radio. I, I, don't, I don't think that Robert thinks in those terms. I've, I've been around him a lot and, you know, on the streets here, not necessarily when we're working, but out in public and socializing. And He's the real deal. You know, he cares about people. That also is evident in this story. It, it, it's a very people-oriented thing, a very relationship-oriented it's genuine with Bob. He's a very gracious man, and I think he, you know, not only works hard and is gifted, he, he realizes how fortunate he is, and he's happy to share that good fortune with the people around him, I believe. Are there any places here in the Pioneer Valley that you'll remember 
fondly. I should reset that I'm talking with Sam Elliott as if his voice were not enough to say that I was talking to Sam Elliott. I think everywhere I've gone here, I'm going to remember fondly. You know, I mean, I've, I, and I'm, I'm not one that's great at remembering where and what I've been or who I've crossed paths with, particularly when it's all new and particularly when it's on a schedule like we've had. You know, we worked 12-hour days. We've had one 15-hour days. We worked a lot of nights and... Be honest with you, I'm pretty fried at this point. Come back time. and visit when you don't need to work. But it's beautiful. Yeah, it's, Bob will take you to the Montague Book Mill and yeah. drink wine by this beautiful waterfall. Right. The Sam Elliott voice is what people recognize you for. You know, you can be narrating anything. It's it's iconic. It's Morgan Freeman. It's like the voices yeah. that you. Thank you. Very kind of you. Uh, what was the first time where you realized people are? really paying attention to my voice in a way that I think this could work for me. I've never really thought about that, you know. I mean, the voiceover thing came well into my career. Uh -huh. I didn't start out doing voiceover. You didn't sound like this at, like, age well, 14? No, I didn't. <laughs> I gradually got lower, you know. I mean, I, I was singing bass at a very early age, you know, as a teenager, but I also sang... I don't know. I guess I was a baritone. I don't think I was ever a tenor or well, a soprano. <laughs> the last thing I'll bug you with, if you would indulge me, is people love the voice. So I was wondering if you would read these things. You can look it over beforehand because I think there are things people want to hear in a Sam Elliott voice. Could be like little bits of encouragement or witticisms or just beautiful words. What are you going to do with these? I'm going to put them on my radio show. I'm not going to sell them. How or long do are they going to be used? This one I might use. But you don't have to do that one at the bottom. That's my show. Rachel Maddow does it right now. But I'd be happy to include you into the mix. I'd just as soon do the one on the bottom and let it go up there. Oh, you got it. Different is good. Mornings with Monty on the river. Thank you. You're welcome. Different is good. Mornings with Monty on the river. That's a look back at my conversation with Sam Elliott when he was in town filming The Man Who Killed Hitler and then The Bigfoot happy to say that Bob Kraskowski, the writer and director of that movie, is now a dear, dear friend. You can see him on January 30th at the Shea with me at our Cinema Storm. It's Breakin' and The Last Dragon. Looking back on 17 years here of Mornings with Me on the River, as I've mentioned many times, my family's been part of the show. Part of the privilege of being on the radio is you get to meet very interesting people. And sometimes, your heroes and your children's heroes. My kids were obsessed with the Broadway musical Wicked. And lo and behold, who moved to town but Broadway makeup designer of Wicked and many other musicals, Joe DeLude II, who offered to green up my children, did the makeup for them as if they were Elphaba and Galinda. And then my children interviewed him. My kids Atticus and Enzo are obsessed with the Broadway musical Wicked. So much so that they're going to make a wicked musical movie. It just so happens that right here in Northampton, the makeup designer for the Broadway production Wicked just moved to town. So we went to the home of Joe DeLude II, where Atticus interviewed Joe and got painted up like Galinda. Ask him a question. Why don't I read my question? What's your favorite song in Wicked? Ooh, that's a good question. Stumped him on the first one. Well done. I know. Um, I've heard it so many times, so it's hard to... I would probably say No Good Deed. I love listening to the orchestra play it when there's no vocals, too, because a lot of times you lose some of the instruments during it, and the orchestrations are really, really stunning. What friends did you make from working on Broadway? Oh, God. A lot. 
a lot of the alphabas. Um, some of my really good friends now are people that I was on tour with when I was with Wicked. Like Lori, I met Lori on on the tour. Lori Holmes Clark, wife of Good Ben Clark from Deerfield, not to be confused with Evil Ben Clark, the Republican strategist. There you go. What was hard about your job? What was hard about my job? Wow. No one asked me these questions. That's kind of amazing. Um, <laughs> I think the hardest part was it was the first show I had Broadway show that I had ever designed. So I, I there were a lot of unknowns. I wasn't quite sure how everything ran. I wasn't sure how a show ran. So I think that the hardest part was convincing myself that I knew what I was doing. What was your favorite part backstage at Wicked? I always like when really strange, funny things happen that you don't expect. Close your eyes. Like one time in the beginning when the mother's giving birth to Elphaba, there was one time when the um, bed didn't come out, so she had to give birth on the floor. What are some highlights from working on Broadway? I think it's the people that I get to meet. People that I never thought that I would ever meet in my life growing up. People that I was huge fans of. I got to do Sybil Shepherd's makeup, and I was a huge fan of hers for Moonlighting. Moonlighting strangers who just met on the way. It was very strange and surreal for me because growing up, you never think that you're going to meet these people that you see on TV or see in movies and that you sort of idolize and love. And all of a sudden, you're sitting in front of them, talking to them. And I also have another one who's a really good friend of mine, the actress Patty Duke, who's also older than I am, and so I would never have thought that I would have ever become friends with her, but she played our Madame Morrible, and she couldn't do her makeup, so I would go in and do her makeup every night. And we just became really great friends, and when I moved back from San Francisco, I actually stopped in Idaho at her house for the weekend and spent the weekend at her house and with her and her husband and her and her twin 5,000 dogs. Identical cousin. Now you're gonna get all Galinda'd, yep. Atticus? Yes, I am Galinda-fied. How do you like Northampton so far? I love it. Yeah. I wake up every day and I'm so happy that I'm here. Good. Just relax your eye. Don't worry, I'm a professional. I'm not going to poke your eye out. I mean, when I put lashes on, I've been known to glue people's eyes shut, but... <laughs> <laughs> but I'll never poke your eye out. These are the same hands that painted Kristen Chenoweth. Let me show you how to toss your hair. You just flip. You just flip. Atticus, mm -hmm. you're becoming your idol. Mm-hmm. She's a really wonderful person, Kristen. She's so fun and silly. Was it stressful when you first started doing makeup on Broadway to like feel that pressure of like having to do it within a certain time frame? No, um, because I used to do fashion shows. And so in the fashion shows, you'd have some girls that would come in from another show and they would come in like five minutes before the, the show that, that you're doing is supposed to start and they'd have a full face of makeup on. So you'd have to take off that makeup, put on the design for this show and get them out there on time. And I think that was a huge help to me in my career. My record for doing the greening is um, seven minutes. I like how you call it the greening. Or greenifying. Or the greenifying, yes. You look good, Atticus. Thank you. Toss, toss. Or you can use your hand. Flip it with your hand. It's Galinda with a guh. Ooh, now he's putting eyelashes on you, Galinda. Okay, Galinda, let's see. Whoa, I look very different. How do you like how you look? I like it. Feel like nice. you're more popular now. Yes. Look at your eyelashes. Mm -hmm. Make all the difference. At the home of New Northampton Transplant and makeup designer for Wicked, among many other Broadway productions, Joe Delude the Second, who greenified and Galindified the Big Belmonte Boys as they prepare to make their next big film production, Wicked the Musical, the movie, illegally.
They never did quite finish that movie, but I am excited about the Wicked musical movie coming out, especially now that Michelle Yeoh has been announced as Madame Morrible. Well, thank you so much for listening over all these years to this podcast and over all these years on the air. Look for new adventures from me coming up in early 2023.